Merry Christmas, the late crowd. You guys are the smart ones. Come after all the big crowds can get in and out. Did you already have dinner? Yes, uh, so you're digesting. I'm going to put you to sleep in the next 15 minutes, man. This is gonna, now, we'll get you out of here. But thank you for spending uh, your Christmas with us. We're honored to have you. Uh, my name is uh, Troy. I'm one of the pastors here. I say that to those of you, if you're a guest with us, it's your first time, so you can know. And I also say it to those that are part of our church, because you probably don't recognize me in a suit jacket like this, <laughs> right? And it's, and it's getting smaller every year. Fat guy in a little suit. There we go. I might get one more year out of this. Anyway, um, tonight um, I have a very specific agenda. And when I have an agenda, I, um, I always try to tell you up front so that you don't feel like, uh, you know, I, I snuck up on you and blindsided you, okay? I want to, uh, some of you that are here tonight, at some point in your life, uh, maybe when you were younger, maybe 20 years ago, maybe two years ago, I don't know, um, you at one point had a faith in God. You had a faith in God, but as time kind of passed on, uh, you kind of lost it a little bit, right? Uh, uh, maybe, maybe some of you had a bad church experience. I mean, we've all had one of those or, or 10 of those. <laughs> um, or maybe uh, your family moved from where you were connected and they're not connected anymore. Or maybe your family went through some stuff. Maybe there's a divorce and it just kind of never went back. Or maybe uh, you went to college uh, and uh, you just quit believing. It just wasn't kind of part of your lifestyle then and you kind of just drifted away. Or uh, some of you, maybe tragedy happened. Maybe you lost someone that you loved. Uh, maybe, maybe you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and God didn't answer your prayers and now you're disappointed with God. You know, there's a little bit of a distance between you. I, I, I don't know exactly what your story is, but what I do know is that if your story was my story, I'd probably feel the same way that you do or I would have probably done the same thing that you did. And so I'm not judging here tonight. I'm not judging at all. Um, and I'm not trying to tell you that you did something wrong. Um, I just want, listen to me, I just want to take the next few minutes to encourage you. I want to encourage you to um, reconnect with your faith. To reconnect with the faith of maybe your childhood or maybe your 20s or whenever it was. To reconnect with your faith this Christmas. Right now. Um, and when I say reconnect, I think what I guess I'm trying to say is uh, that you would maybe somehow, some way, take a baby step to God. This God who, who loves you and who wants to be a part of your life. Uh, I, I don't know what a baby step would look like for you. It could be that maybe you would say a prayer for the first time in a long time, a prayer to God. You'd be like, hey, God. I know it's been a long time since we talked. Hi. <laughs> Merry Christmas. You know, I don't know what it would be for you. Uh, um, uh, but I do know this, that Christmas time is the perfect time to reconnect to God. I believe that. Uh, and here's why I feel like I can do this. I feel, um, I know, and I think that you know, that deep down inside of you, um, there is still a little light. Uh, uh, there is a, a little flicker of faith 
still inside of you. Uh, uh, and, and every now and then it kind of touches your soul. It kind of pings you a little bit. And, and maybe, you know, someone says something and it causes a thought and you think to yourself, gosh, I should go back to him. Or maybe I, maybe I should try this again. And you feel it and then it's gone. You maybe, I don't know for whatever reason, you get busy or you get distracted, but then you forget. And so here's the thing, to help you Consider taking this little step, this, this reconnecting with God. I want to share with you uh, the person that I most uh, identify with that's in the Christmas story. We've, we've, we hear the story every year. We see the pageants, and there's always characters that I think sometimes, I remember when I was younger, I always connected with the wise men because I one time in a Christmas pageant played a wise man. I had my dad's bathrobe on, and they put beard on me, and, and I was like, I like those guys, right? So who do you? identify with. I mean, some of you ladies, you might be like Mary, you know, what, you know, what a good girl she was, or maybe uh, Joseph, some, you know, you're like, he's a good man, or maybe uh, the shepherds, you identify with because they were afraid, and you feel fear a lot, or maybe uh, the magi, because they were pretty weird, and you're kind of weird. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe baby Jesus. No, don't, don't, nah, maybe you don't identify with that, but uh, who do you identify with the most? Um, Honestly, the person that I identify with the most in the Christmas story is the one that you and I might consider to be the villain of Christmas. I'm talking about uh, King Herod, Herod the Great. Now, uh, listen, I'll tell you why I connect with him in just a few minutes, but, but here, I want to say this. I believe this. Listen to me. I believe that there is a tiny little King Herod inside all of us. I believe that. If you don't know King Herod, Herod was uh, the king of Judea back during the time of Christ. Um, he wasn't a Jew. He was a Roman, and he was what they called a client king, a client uh, king. In other words, Rome appointed him to be the king of Judea, and this drove the Jews crazy. They couldn't stand Herod at all, right? But here's the thing about Herod that you may not know. Herod was a, uh, an incredibly gifted person. I mean, he really was. He was smart. Uh, he was politically astute. And he was a great builder. Uh, he built, I've been over to Israel. He built these unbelievable aqueducts carrying water from miles away. Never seen technology like that. He built uh, palaces up on mountains. Um, he built uh, seaports. Um, and he also rebuilt the Jewish temple. It had been destroyed after four or 500 years. He rebuilt it bigger and better than before. And so the thing is, is he was great. But here's the thing. More than anything, and this is what you understand about Herod. Herod was uh, extremely ambitious I mean, just super ambitious. He was a talented guy, but he was ambitious, and his ambition um, got the best of him sometimes at the end, especially at the end. And so before I read to you what the Bible says about Herod, um, I want to tell you my favorite Herod story. Now, you won't find this in the Bible. This is just history. Um, but uh, you might remember back in high school or in college hearing about Julius Caesar. You might read about Julius Caesar and how he was killed uh, in the Roman Senate. You know, they stabbed him in the back and he fell down and et tu, Brute. You know, you ever, anybody? You must have went to Moffat County High School too. All right, anyway. Uh, but uh, but uh, when Julius Caesar died in 44 BC, his friend Mark Antony and Julius's nephew, a guy by the name of Octavius, decided to avenge his death. And they went out and they killed all the people that were connected to that or were responsible for it. But when they had kind of, uh, when their common enemies had kind of been eliminated, these two men turned against each other. And they began to battle for the throne of Rome. 
And uh, people immediately took sides. These guys were on that side, that guy on that side, and they were all hoping that their guy would be the last man standing. King Herod, his guy was Mark Antony. They'd been friends for a long time, and uh, Mark Antony had a famous wife. Does anybody remember her name? Just say it out loud. Cleopatra, thank you, Moffat County High School graduates. You got to go back and study your. Anyway, Cleopatra, and uh, and uh, and and so uh, Herod threw parties for these two. He gave them lavish gifts. He really greased the wheels on this thing. He also stood up for them and helped them in a rebellion that happened over in Alexandria. But Roman citizens hated Cleopatra. They didn't trust her. They figured that she was when she became queen, or she was queen, that she would work it to make Egypt be over Rome, and so they didn't like that. But eventually. Octavius, the other guy, and his legion and his people defeated Mark Antony. And Octavius instantly became the first emperor of Rome. His name was Caesar Augustus. Do you recognize that? From the Bible, the Christmas story, Caesar Augustus. And uh, when Herod learned about him winning, Herod was like, oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I backed the wrong horse. And he was in trouble. And he basically had two options. He could kill himself. Uh, before Octavius did it for him, or he could run away. Uh, and, and you'd think that he had done that. But it's in, uh, instead, Herod does the unthinkable. This is uh, amazing. He gets on a ship, and he sails a ship to uh, the island of Rhodes, which is where Caesar Augustus was uh, kind of wintering. And Herod shows up unannounced and uninvited uh, at this guy's palace, and he knocks on the door, and they open the door, and they're like, oh, what are you doing here? And, and he says, I would like a chance to speak with the emperor. And so they let him in, and he greets Augustus, and then he asks and, and makes this uh, impassioned speech. He basically says this to him. He says, uh, as you know, Augustus, um, I was a friend of your enemy, uh, Mark Antony. And as you know, um, I was loyal to him. I was loyal to him from the beginning and through the Civil War all the way to the bitter end. And so if there's one thing that you know about me, it's that I'm loyal. And so, uh, great Caesar, I've come here today to pledge my loyalty to you. Now that's smooth. That's brilliant. It was a gamble. And Augustus loved it. He ate it up. He was so impressed by Herod's courage and his speech. He not only let Herod uh, keep the nation of Judah and run that, but he also gave him Samaria, um, Jericho, and Gaza to rule over as well. And so that's basically King Herod in a nutshell. He was, he was super smart. He was politically astute. And he was extremely ambitious, all right? And, and like I said, though, his ambition got him into trouble from time to time. And his bat, his, he had an ambition. His ambition was to leave, get this, to leave a legacy as a great king, right? And subsequently, Herod was incredibly controlling. He was always involved in everything and he would sometimes make one bad decision after another. For example, he had 10 wives. That's nine too many, amen? Uh, he had 10 wives and, and he had a ton of sons, had a ton of sons, and every few years he would put one of those sons in charge of a certain area. And eventually he would get upset with that son, and then he would execute that son, and then he would ask another one to take his place. And eventually the other sons kind of caught on. They're like, uh, okay, no thanks, Dad. I'm fine where I'm at. You know, they didn't want that job. But uh, Herod was so ambitious about building his kingdom and building his legacy that he would do anything to maintain control. 
He killed his sons. He killed some wives. He killed some friends. He killed a lot of rabbis in Jerusalem. And so, now we get to the biblical narrative of Jesus' birth. And by this time, Herod, King Herod, is 70 years old. When we see him show up in the Gospels, he's 70 years old. He's an old man. He's cranky. And he's sick. Not surprisingly, he's sick. Uh, uh, he's got a, a, a very painful kidney disease of some sort. And, uh, and so he knows that his time is short. And he, uh, he's trying to consolidate his power. And he's trying to cement his legacy so that he can go down in history as a great man, a great king. That's all he wanted, right? Well, one day, uh, Herod gets news that's the most disturbing news that he could imagine. He learns that just five miles south of Jerusalem, just five miles south of where he was, there was a new king. There was a new king in the neighborhood. And this new king was learning how to walk. Yeah, um, this is from Matthew's version of the Christmas story. Matthew chapter two, verse one, it says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi, these wise men, these rulers from the east, came to Jerusalem and they asked this question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? They're going all over the city. Where is the one that has been born the king of Jews? And when they, we saw his star and when it rose, we have come now to worship him. Now I want you to imagine how that question, where is the king of the Jews, landed in King Herod's life. I don't think he liked it much. I think he got intimidated. In fact, it tells us, Matthew says this, that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem along with him. <laughs> and now that you know the background of Herod, you understand it's easy for you to see why the whole city was disturbed. Because when King Herod was disturbed, um, bad things were going to happen. Bad stuff. And, so, and, and not only that, that was back in the old days. Now he's old and he's cranky and now he's in pain. And now suddenly his control of his kingdom, this thing that he's built, is a little shaky. It's at risk. And so, listen, uh, this is a bad situation. People are going to die, and it's going to hurt. I mean, I'm telling you. And so Herod then, it says this, that Herod called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. He's trying to get some information. Now, this had to be scary for some of these Jewish leaders, um, you know, to go to meet with Herod, and they knew that what they were going to tell him he wasn't going to like. But they knew the answer, because every Jewish boy and every little Jewish girl grew up knowing where the Messiah would be born, in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they tell him. For this is what the prophet had wrote. The prophet said hundreds of years ago that, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the tribe of Judah. For out of you will come a, a ruler. <laughs> yeah, a ruler, uh, that's what it says, sorry, who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is the worst news imaginable uh, to King Herod. And so he does his thing. He jumps in, he gets into controlling mode. He, start, he, he then calls the Magi. He says that Herod then called the Magi secretly and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared to them. And so he sent them to Bethlehem and he gave them some information. He said, go and search carefully for this child. Listen to me. As soon as you find him, let me say that. As soon as you find him, I want you to report back to me. Come back quickly so that I too may go and worship him along with you, okay? Whatever. So after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Verse nine, it says this, that when they saw the star, 
the Magi were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Now that's the third time in this little narrative that we've heard this word, worship. And this is hard for us to wrap our minds around here in the 21st century. The word worship in our modern times and in our modern churches basically is synonymous with singing. We're going to worship now. That means you sing. But true worship is a little different. True worship is a little bit more than that. Um, True worship is, listen to this, when you recognize that you're in the presence of someone that is much greater than yourself. True worship is when you stand with someone and you're in awe of them. And, and physically and emotionally, you can't help yourself but to kind of submit yourself to them. That's what it means to worship. And so these wise men who have traveled a long, long way to get here, when they find this baby, the Bible says that they fell to their knees in worship because of who they thought this child was. The visible image of an invisible God right there before them. Now, while this is happening, meanwhile, in five miles away, back up in Jerusalem, Herod is worrying himself sick. I mean, he's just like, has anybody seen these guys? I, I mean, uh, where did they go? I mean, what are they doing? What's happening? He's just freaking out. And as usual, Herod's just trying to control and manipulate everything, right? Because his whole life has been built around this idea of preserve, protect, control. Preserve, protect, control. That's what he's all about. And so with a new king just five miles down the road, Herod's heart is filled with anxiety and his body is racked with pain. And Herod, with his fist clenched, decides that he will never bow in worship to anyone but himself. And this sounds a little familiar for us. This is why I say, listen to me, there is a little tiny Herod in all of us. I mean, most of us have, you know, we, we, don't, we don't mind having God in our life a little bit or dealing with God um, if, if God will help us build our kingdom. We're cool with that. I'm, I have enough God. As long as you're helping me build my kingdom, I'm okay with that. But the idea of, uh, of worshiping God to where I really, you know, worship, or, or the idea of giving my life to God, what does that even mean? What does that mean? And, and what will that mean for uh, my plans and my goals and my dreams? What does that mean? See, I'll tell you, I'm I'm trying to make this point. I believe that surrendering to God doesn't come natural to any of us. Why? Because there's a tiny little Herod living in inside of us. And none of us want to give up too much control. So, back to the story. Verse 12, it says this, Having been warned in a dream to not go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Uh, He said, get up (laughs) and take the child and his mother and you need to get down to Egypt. And you need to stay there until I tell you for, get this, Herod is going to search for this child to kill him. There's people looking for him, but he wants to kill him. 
And so Joseph smartly, wisely got up. He took the child and the mother and he ran down to Egypt. In verse 16, it says this, that when Herod realized that he'd been outsmarted and outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And again, if Herod was furious, that meant people were gonna suffer. Because Herod had spent his whole life, like I said, working to control outcomes. He wanted certain things to happen a certain way. And he was good at it. I mean, he was always able to figure a way. I mean, think back, right? When he was on the wrong side of the battle over the the throne of Rome, right? He was able to figure out a way to outsmart the emperor. But now, Herod realizes that he's been outsmarted by three wise men and a baby. And and, and it infuriates him. And true to form, uh, Herod doesn't uh, give up. He pushes through. He comes up with a new plan. And so he uses the power and the authority that he has, and he issues some orders. And let me tell you about these orders. These are the kind of orders that you and I could never imagine giving, much less hearing. Uh, In verse 16, it says that Herod gave orders to kill, not just one baby, but all of the boys in Bethlehem, all the little boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old or younger in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. And that's exactly what they did. On one horrific morning, Herod's soldiers uh, marched into the little town of Bethlehem and they went inside every single house and if they found a little boy... They murdered him in front of the family. Hundreds of children were slaughtered in that day. (laughs) Now, uh, here's the thing. You won't believe what happens next. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but this is in history. Um, Herod tried to kill himself that same year. Not because he felt guilty, but because of the pain from that kidney thing was too much to bear, and he tried to end his life. Um, But luckily, or maybe unluckily, depends on how you look at it, his cousin walked in and saved him. And so Herod continued to suffer for the next few years. And then just before he actually died, Herod issued another order. He said, he told his guys, he said, I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to round up all of the most wealthy and most influential men that live in the city and I want you to put him in prison. And the moment that I die, I want you to kill him. I want you to execute him. Why? Why would you? What is this about? Well, Herod realized that that nobody would mourn his death. No one would care. And so to make sure that someone would be mourning on the day that he died, he ordered the execution of all these men. He, uh, he worked his whole life. His whole life was to leave a legacy as a great king, a great man. And Herod died a despised and hated person. Thankfully, when he did die, uh, his servants ignored this, this control freak's final orders. Uh, they went and they released all these men that he had put in prison. Now, this next passage that I'm about to read is, is fascinating. And not because what it says, because what it doesn't say. It, it's brilliant. Notice what Matthew leaves out. It says this. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, 
Get up, said it again. Get up, take the child and his mother, and I want you to go back to the land of Israel. But look at this. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Notice Matthew doesn't name who's dead. Doesn't say, Herod died. You're okay. It's weird. This is an amazing little passage when you think about the context of the story. Think about this. In an incredible twist of irony and maybe even fate, think about this. Herod the Great becomes just a basically a little footnote in the story of Jesus the baby. Right? You got Herod the Great, the great builder, the great politician, the great king, And now he's just this little asterisk, a little footnote in the story of Jesus the baby. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And can you imagine trying to go back and explain what happens here with Herod's legacy to Herod? Maybe he's on his deathbed and you walk in and you're like, Herod, listen, man, I got some good news and some bad news. What do you want? Good news. All right. Well, let me tell you, Herod, the good news is that 2,000 years from now, people are going to still be talking about you, bro. Yeah, um, yeah. 2,000 years from now, people all over the world uh, in hundreds of different countries and languages are going to gather together every year in homes and in buildings like this and, in, and they're going to sit in rows and, or sit in circles and they're going to read about you. And Herod would hear this and go, wow, that's, that's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted. Um. Yeah, but there's some bad news here, Herod. Uh, uh, Here's the thing. You're just going to be a secondary character in this story. I mean, you're just this peripheral character that's in this story. You're just a footnote in the story about a baby who grew up to become the most beloved king the world has ever known. Yeah. Um, uh, And and, uh, 2,000 years from now, Herod, you're not going to be that well-known you know, you're, you, you, uh, you, people aren't going to be talking about what you built, you know, those aqueducts and those palaces and those seaports. No, they're, they're, you're, you won't be known as Herod the Builder. You're going to be known as Herod the Butcher. Yeah, and worst of all, Herod, um, you were just five miles away, five miles away from where the Son of God was born. And because of pride, because of your pride, uh, you missed your opportunity for eternal glory. I mean, you were so close, and yet so far away. I mean, it's tragic when you think about his life. It's tragic. And so, from there, I want to flash forward 80 years. Okay? 80 years later, Herod, by this time, is long gone. Uh, Caesar Augustus is gone. Uh, Caesar Tiberius and Nero are both also gone. Oh, and not only that, this is most interesting. The the Jewish temple, 80 years later, is gone. It's been around for a thousand years. It's the center of Jewish life and it has been completely destroyed. It's gone. Yeah, uh, Herod, I mean, you think about all that work that Herod did and all those years Herod spent rebuilding the Jewish temple bigger and better than ever before it's, it's gone. It's a parking lot. Nothing there. His life's work. And so, 80 years later, John the Apostle, John, 
the apostle, you know him. He's writing his gospel, his account of Jesus' life. And this is the same John who took Mary as his mother, as, as, as his mom, when Jesus was crucified. And so John had good access and insight and had an opportunity to ask Mary what really happened and all the things that went on, you know. He had an opportunity to ask Mary questions like, Mary, tell me, uh, what did you think when the Magi came and they, and they bowed down and worshipped before your son? Or, or Mary, man, what, what, were you afraid when you had to run down to Egypt because Herod was hunting you down? Or Mary, how... how how, how, what was it like when you heard that some of your friends back over in Bethlehem lost their sons because of your son? I mean, uh, John uh, knew everything. He knew everything. He saw everything. He saw uh, the miracles that Jesus performed. He saw Jesus die on the cross. And he saw <laughs> Jesus alive um, afterwards. A few days later, he saw the resurrection, the resurrected Lord. Um, and so, uh, 80 years later, um, John is an old man, and he's looking back. And he's been exiled to the island of Patmos, which is some little backwater deal out there. And, uh, and he's living inside of basically a small, dark cave up on the mountainside. I've been in it. It's fascinating. Um, and he's, he's writing this story, and, and he's writing it with candlelight, you know, inside this dark cave. And he's thinking about all the things that he saw, all the things that he's seen. And, uh, and he decides, you know what, I need to summarize that. I need to make it simple so that people can get their mind around. And so what he wrote next, uh, here's what he wrote next. And, and here's why, don't miss this, here's why you and I have got to pay attention to that little thing that pings our soul, whatever it is. We've got to pay attention to that little thing that... Uh, points us back to God every once in a while. We need to, and here's why. It says this, in John 1.1, and this is John's version of the Christmas story. It's interesting. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Now, he's talking about uh, Jesus here, and we know that because in verse 14, later on, he says this, that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? So John is saying that with my own eyes, with my very own eyes, I have seen uh, God in human form. I've seen God in a bod, right? But then John says something that's very interesting. In verse four, now this is what I want you to get. He said this, in him, in him, in this baby that was born in Bethlehem was life. And that life was the light of the world. Uh, and, and it's fascinating. Up to this point, uh, John has been talking in past tense. He's using a lot of was, and he was, and he was. But now all of a sudden he shifts to present tense. John says this. He says, here it is. The light shines in the darkness. Right now, Right now, John is old, he's tired, he's cold, he's alone, but he is afraid. He's not afraid. Why? Because right now, in the midst of this dark, depressing, broken, freaking world, there's a light. It's still shining in this darkness. 
And I imagine as he's writing this, um, he's looking at his candle uh, in, there, in this little cave. And he sees the light and he realizes uh, in spite of all of the heartache that he's gone through in his life and all of the pain that he has suffered, he was boiled in oil, by the way. Yeah, um, he was one of the only disciples that wasn't killed, martyred for his faith. He died of old age. Um, but he, all the pain that he suffered and all maybe the disappointments that he had in his life, um, he realizes that there's still hope. That he can still be hopeful. Why? Because what he says, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and don't miss this, and the darkness can never put it out. The darkness tries to swallow that little candle, that flicker, that flame, but it can't. It can never snuff out that light because it's the light of God. And this light, this flame that burns inside of us, uh, regardless of the problems that you and I are going through, the disappointments, the depression, the, all of that, whatever we experience in this light, in this life, that light, John says, can never really be extinguished. It can never really be put out. And so, um, that brings us back to you here tonight. What do you want your story to be? What will your story be? When someone stands up and tells your story, like I told Herod's story tonight, what will your story be when it comes to and relation to the light of the world? Right? Herod was five miles away. What will your story be like when it comes to the light of the world? Will it be like Herod's story? Will it be a story of, of, of pride? You know, arrogance? Or will it be a story of um, worship? Will it be a story of, of control and manipulation and trying to take care of business? Or will it be a story of Surrender? Will, will it be a story where you uh, spend your whole life, just like Herod, trying to build a kingdom of your own, when in fact you could have accepted an invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God? Will your story be a story of, of chaos and uh, fear and anxiety and pain? Or will your story be a story of peace and hope and joy? What story do you want to be told about you? Here's the thing that I know is true, okay? And, and I said it before and I'll say it again. That light, it's still in you. It's still inside of you. It's still there. Why? Why? Because the darkness, the stuff that you've gone through, the frustration, the hurt, can never put out that light. And so I, I just want to ask, I want to encourage you, will you take a step back towards God tonight? Will you just kind of take a baby step? And like I said, there is no better time than Christmas time to reconnect with God. Don't let, don't let that little Herod inside of you steal this opportunity, this night for you. Because um, tonight is a perfect night to put your trust back 
in the light and the hope of the world. Amen? Let me pray for you. Hey, uh, God, um, this last month we've been talking about peace and how to find peace. And it just seems like it's fleeting in this world. And uh, after the three years that we've gone through, uh, very few of us have, have it. But you said that you would give it to us and that you would put it inside of us. And, and so, Lord, we blow tonight on the embers of that flame and we ask that, God, you would bring uh, more peace and more hope and more joy in our life and that we will pursue you. We will do what we can to take a step toward you. I pray for my friends that tonight that have been disappointed and hurt, that you would give them a spirit of courage to, to step towards you and to make a move towards you. You said, those who seek me will find me. Those who knock on the door, I will open up. And those who ask, they shall receive. And so, God, I pray, we're asking for your peace to fill us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.